it lovely to have the word of God read to us? Old Testament, gospel, and new. Why don't you pray with me as we get ready to open up the scriptures. Father God, we give you thanks. It's a privilege to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. And dwelt by your spirit to worship before your throne. It's a privilege to be able to open your word and hear it. It's a blessing to us, Father God. Your word is, is richer than honey. And our soul revives us. You refresh us. And we ask that you do that even now as we look at this first message to the church. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Lord, captivate our minds, our attention, our hearts' affections. And reign in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I uh, mentioned in the weekly email, um, how many of you remember getting your primary school annual report? Am I the only one or... Did you used to look forward to those too? As I said, I, I, I think for memory mine was a bright orange booklet. I, I went looking in my memorabilia tub yesterday, but I could not find it. But do you remember how we used to look forward to those reports? And we would just concentrate on every word, you know, either swelling with pride if we got some uh, beautiful thing that was said, some affirming thing, or shattered with disappointment if there were things that were identified. I couldn't find the one I was after, but for memory, it was uh, a year one report I had from Miss No Watney, and she said this, Paul is a very neat boy. He always has a clean hanky. <laughs> there you go. Early signs of a strong type one on the Enneagram. <laughs> How about you? I'm sure that you, uh, you've got some corkers that you could share too, and some crackers of statements that were written down. Uh, before uh, things were PC, you know what I mean? In fact, I, I went searching for some uh, classics, report statements of famous people. You want to hear some? I'll take that as a yes. Stephen Fry. Stephen has glaring faults and they have certainly glared at us this term. <laughs> Jilly Cooper is an author. Jilly has set herself an extremely low standard which she has failed to maintain. <laughs> Winston Churchill, get this one. Winston is a constant trouble to everybody and is always in some scrape or another. He cannot be trusted to behave himself anywhere. John Lennon, uh, certainly on the road to failure, hopeless, rather a clown in class, wasting other pupils' time. Richard Bryars, it would seem that Bryars thinks he's running the school and not me. If this attitude persists, one of us will have to leave. <laughs> Or uh, Sir Richard Branson. He will either go to prison or become a millionaire. And then Albert Einstein. He will never amount to anything. That was on Albert Einstein's report. He'll never amount to anything. How's that? Or Roald, Roald Dahl, the author. A persistent muddler. Vocabulary negligible. Sentences malconstructed. He reminds me of a camel, said some teacher. I used to... Um, enjoy reading some of these when I was teaching I enjoyed reading some of these that were circulating a few years ago just a couple for you since my last report your child has reached rock bottom and has started to dig <laughs> 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 uh, 
Ah, don't you wish you could write some of these things now? Teachers, come on, I know. Some of you really wish you could write these. This one. Works well when under constant supervision and cornered like a rat in a trap. (laughs) This student should go far. And the sooner he starts, the better. Second last. This young lady has delusions of adequacy. (laughs) Last one. I love this. The boom gate's down. The lights are flashing, but the train just ain't coming. (laughs) Ah, there you go. Annual reports, teachers' reports. A lot of those, obviously, they focused on the negatives in ways that you're not allowed to uh, nowadays. But can you imagine, can you imagine ever getting a report that had uh, heaps of positives listed in your report, heaps of them, genuine ones, but one... A significant negative issue that was so serious that if you didn't deal with it, it actually threatened being expelled from school. Can you imagine a report like that? Well, that's kind of like the first letter to the church in Ephesus. Heaps of prose, but one very serious con which threatened its whole existence. So Ephesus, uh, the closest city to, to Patmos down there on the, uh, your left-hand side of the screen. So John received these messages dictated from the risen, ascended Lord Jesus and then he sent them and Ephesus was the closest uh, city, a major city. New Testament times, there were around 250,000 people living there. They had a theatre with a seating capacity of 25,000. Uh, Three major roads all converged there. It made it quite a centre for commerce. And it was on the banks of that river, you can actually see it there, the Caister River. It's all silted over now, long since silted over. So the city is actually several kilometres inland from the coast now. But in the first century, it was a major, a major centre. Paul ministered there. Paul left Timothy to minister there. Uh, history has it there, even the Apostle John ministered there, gave his, his uh, one-sentence sermon, brothers, sisters, love each other, love one another. And this is the first church that receives a letter from the ascended Lord Jesus. Listen to the things that he commends about that church. It's got a long history. Um, interesting, it, it says it, it all starts with, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And Jesus begins with just a couple of points of self-designation. He describes himself in two ways. The first one is that he, he holds the seven stars in his hand. And we've already seen this picture uh, last week at the end of chapter 1. The seven stars were a symbol of the seven angels of these seven churches. Um, juries out about what those angels were. Commentators are divided Uh, Was it an actual angel? The book of Revelation talks a lot about angels. Uh, Is it symbolic for a a leader, an elder, a bishop over that uh, church in that place? Or is it representative of a prevailing spirit in the city? Or in, sorry, in that church? We don't quite know. But whatever it is, um, this representative is the one who is 
are going to then communicate it to the church. It, it's being written to a representative of the church and Jesus is saying that he holds those representatives in his hand. In other words, he has authority over them. They're close to him. They're in his grip. And he gives another designation. He says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we saw this image last week too. Uh, what are the lampstands, the golden lampstands? They are pictures of the church, the church where there is a light shining in a dark place. But last week, it said that Jesus is just in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now Jesus is saying, not that he's just in the midst, but that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Jesus is actively present among the churches. So friends, we can take this to heart. Jesus has authority over this local church. This local church is not the property of any one person, any, any group of people. This is Jesus' church, Morley Baptist. And he is actively present among us. So he has some things he can say to us. And listen to these positives that he lists off as uh, he brings his commendation to bear. And it all starts with, I know. He's not unfamiliar with us. He knows us intimately. He's aware by experience. He knows about, and then it says, our deeds. I think that's just a sort of a general description. And then he begins to expand on that with these specifics. Look at all of these. Uh, this was a church that knew how to toil. They were hard workers. They knew how to roll up their sleeves and get jobs done. They worked hard. They laboured. They weren't scared of it. Morley, you're a church like that. You're a church that knows how to work. I see that at Sports Fest. I see that at Carol's. You're a group of people who know how to roll up your sleeves and put in the hard yakka. You do it. Jesus commends that. He says, I know your toil. I know the work you do. I know the volunteer base you have. I know how much you give week by week, year by year in your service. He says, I know your patient endurance. That here is a, a church that has uh, inner fortitude to withstand hardship and suffering. There must have been some suffering that had come to that church at Ephesus. And Jesus says, I know the way that you haven't buckled under. You've toughed it out. You've stuck it out. You're a church that patiently endures. He says, I know that you cannot bear those who do evil. This is a church that has a high moral standard. And when they uh, see people that are practicing evil, that have immoral character, they have a very low tolerance for it. They cannot bear it. This is a, this is a, a real quality. Jesus is being genuine in what he's saying here. You do not compromise. You do not turn a blind eye to immorality and just think, oh, it's okay. No, you say, no, we cannot tolerate that. That is a good quality. Here's another great quality. Look at this. This is a discerning church. They knew how to discern people that rose up from within them or came through town um, as self-acclaimed apostles. Saying, oh yeah, I've been anointed for this, or I can do that, or you know, I've got some special ministry. And this was a church that was able to spot the fakes really well. I'd say, oh, you're an apostle, are you? They knew how to discern it. They knew how to test it. Let's just put that to the test, shall we? And they would test it and go, no, no, 
you're false. You're a fake. We know how to discern it. We're not being swallowed in. Can you imagine what a strength that quality would be in churches? That instead of being suckered in by fakes who say that they're some grandiose minister, that we know how to discern them. We're actually thinking we could put some photos up on the screens. (laughs) What's this one? Real or false? Real or false? Oh, that got a little bit too close to the bone. We thought perhaps we shouldn't do that. This is a great quality. Being able to discern fakes. Folk that said they were apostles and are not, and you found them out and you called them out for it. Something else. He repeats the two words that he's already just used about um, uh, having toil and having, oh, sorry, not toil, uh, having patient endurance and bearing up. He repeats that, but he adds the motivation for it. So he says, I, I know your patient endurance and that you're bearing up, but then he adds this phrase, for my name's sake. So I think the fact that he's repeating two things he's just previously said. It's, it's throwing emphasis on the underlying motivation for doing that. And the underlying motivation is for my name's sake. Friends, is this a good quality in a church? You bet it is. They are toughing it out. They're, they're bearing up and they're not doing it for their reputation. They're doing it for the sake of the name. Commend Ephesus. Well done. Great motivation. Noble motivation. Look at this. He says, you've not grown weary. Yes, it's been hard. Yes, it's been exhausting. But you haven't tapped out. You haven't thrown in the towel. I know how hard it's been. I know what you've been doing. But you haven't given up. And Jesus says, good on your church. Well done. I know. And I commend you. And he throws in one more just a little bit later. He says, you're aligned with me in what you hate. He says, you hate the works, the deeds, the practices of this group of people called the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Don't know. We don't know. Uh, They must have been a sect of that time. It's repeated a couple of times in these letters. Uh, But uh, we actually don't know the particular characteristics, except that they were working from inside the church And they were working some ruin from within, some compromise, some idolatry or immorality. But here's the thing. The Ephesus church hated their practices. Jesus says, which I also hate. So they are aligned in the way that they dislike the things that Jesus dislikes. These are genuine positives to commend. Where the Lord Jesus sees these things in us, he says, I know And I commend. And he means it. And then he goes on to give one negative. Did you see what it was as Beth read? One negative issue to critique. Simply this. You've abandoned your first love. It's a very strong word, that abandon. It's a very strong term. It means a deliberate turning aside from. It means you had it once but you deliberately left it behind. You departed from it. You kept other things, but you jettisoned that. You discarded it. First love, what's he referring to there? I guess he's referring to those early days in the church's life 
when they were known, their first love, they were known for being a people who loved God, who loved the Lord Jesus. They were like a bride to a groom and they loved him. And that love then permeated their interactions together. And so they loved one another as Jesus commanded them. And it spilled on even beyond that. So it went beyond the borders even of their local uh, church community to their neighbours and to their wider community. And they were a people that had a first love. There was that glow about them. (laughs) We see it, don't we? When you see a new couple and there's that first love always talking together, you know? (laughs) Jesus is saying, church, you had it. You had it once, but you let it go. There was a time when you were characterized by this love for me, by this love for one another, by this love that spilled over the edges into the community and the neighborhood. But you abandoned it. And you can see how important it is by the warning that Jesus gives. He says, if you do not repent of this abandoning of your first love, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from you. What does that mean? Remember, the lampstand is, is the church. It's that, it's that center. It's that life of the church that's emanating uh, light into the surrounding area, the dark place. It's like the spiritual life force of the church. And Jesus is saying... This lack of love, this abandoning of love is so important. that If you don't deal with this, if you don't repent of that, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lampstand from you. I'm going to remove it. Churches can close. Local churches can die. They can cease to exist. They can close their doors. You know, the first place I studied, it was uh, in Adelaide. I rode my motorbike across the Nullarbor to go and study there as a young man. And they used to refer to Adelaide, I don't know where they still do, I guess they do, as the city of churches. It's not quite accurate. It would be far better to call it the city of converted churches because all these beautiful old architecturally designed church buildings are now converted to restaurants or clubs or reception centers. It's a city of converted churches. Churches closed. One old stalwart in Adelaide used to say that um, he traced it back. He said there was a liberalism that just swept through the state decades prior. He said as the gospel got watered down, it was just a matter of time before the churches started closing their doors. I've actually journeyed with a couple of pastors who have had to preside over local churches closing. One in the Great Southern, one in the Northwest. And you know what I remember about journeying with both of those pastors as they had to preside over the closing of those local churches? I remember their tears, both of them as pastors. I remember the way that they, it was just so gut-wrenching for them 
They were so invested in these local churches. They knew their history. They knew how precious it was. They saw what it was to be pastoring over a a vibrant, living, flourishing community. And then bit by bit, it dwindled to the point where they had to close it. And I remember the way those pastors cried. Even this Thursday, I was on the phone to somebody from the Great Southern. David Kingston gave me the number. And I was chatting with this lovely lady down there. And she was saying in that great southern town that now there's no pastor in the Baptist Church, the Uniting Church, the Anglican Church. And the Baptist Church is having a special meeting this Thursday night to seriously consider their future. And my heart just felt a weight upon it. I started to think of the history of that church. That's where I grew up. That's where I was taught the scriptures as a young man. And I started to think, is that, is that church going to close? And I finished the phone call and I just cried. I cried. It's tragic. Do you see the significance of this warning? The seriousness of the warning highlights the importance of the problem. Jesus is saying, if you don't deal with this one issue, oh, come on, Jesus, you've just commended us for seven. Can't you give us a break? That's how serious abandoning the love is. Do you see that? It would be so serious that in spite of all the seven positives, he could say, if you don't deal with that, I'm coming and taking away your lampstand. As Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, we can have all these other things and more. We can be experts in it all. We can be masters of it all. We can have prophetic ministry. We can have all knowledge. We can understand all all, all mysteries. We can have faith to move mountains. We can be a people characterized by sacrifice and, and martyrdom. But if we do not have love, church, we're nothing. Jesus says you've got to deal with it. You used to, Ephesus. You used to have it, but you left it behind. When did you stop, church? When did you stop living out of love for Jesus? When did the worship just become a mouthing of words? When did the Bible reading just become a chore that you had to tick in the morning? When did praying just become something that you just had to get done and a set of words that you just recited? When did fellowship just become a, a sort of a bumper car kind of polite facade on a Sunday morning instead of a real meeting together? When did service become something that you just fulfill because you're on a roster instead of because you loved it? When did you lose your heart for it all, church? You see, if we were marriage counsellors, we were talking to a couple, you know what we'd ask, wouldn't you? We'd say, when did you stop buying flowers? When did you stop holding hands as you walked down the path together? When did you stop giving each other that little twinkle in the eye? <laughs> and we could, we could retort, I still wash the dishes, I still cook some meals, I mow the lawn, I pay the bills. Yeah, but, but where's the heart gone? When did you lose all of the spontaneity and the 
and that Im impulsive, let's just do this. When did it all become so routine? When did it all become such a duty instead of a delight? When did the cold creep in? When did you stop having a meal over the same table and looking at each other in the eyes and talking together? You see, Jesus said about people, oh, they, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Do you see? And you know, that the truth is, it was never about the sacrifices. It was, an, it was never about the toil and the sweat and the toughing it out. It was never about the duty. It was always about the heart. It was never about just the 10% strictly counted out. There, I've done my tithe. It was never about the one chapter a day in the morning. It was never about the one and a half hours together each week in worship. It was always about the heart. He just wanted our hearts, church. That's what he wanted. That's all he wanted. It's what he always wanted. Because if he had our hearts, everything else would just naturally flow. Of course, it would just be an overflow. And so Jesus gives us some instruction. How are we to respond? How do we get back there? Well, Jesus is very clear. He says there's three things. He said, you've got to remember from where you have fallen. Cast your mind back. And remember those early days. Do you remember what it was like? And then he said, you do something very decisive. You repent. You have a change of attitude. You say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I abandoned it. And then he says, you redo. You, you do the works you did at first. But you do it with a, that old attitude, not the one that you've just settled into. You do it out of love. You remember. See, if you've been around here for a while, you'll know. You'll have heard this before. That we don't go forward in the Christian life by trying harder. We go forward by trusting deeper. Love starts with God. And so we remember that love. Can I remind you? He loved us before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption before he created the world. Ephesians 1. He gave us purpose and grace in Christ before time began. Time eternal, 2 Timothy 1. He loved you and I before we turned to him, before we were committed or devoted or cleaned up, before we got our act together. No, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. Christ died for us. So if he, if he gave his life for us and showed his love to us while we were dirty and lost and rebellious, how much more now that we're his will he continue to love us? Do you think he'll stop loving us now when it was never dependent on that back then? <laughs> Do you think that somehow you could have done something now that could dissuade him? from loving you it was never dependent on you do you know that do you think there's anything you could do that could make god stop loving you do you think there's anything in all creation in height or depth do you think there's any angel or demon or things present or things to come that could ever separate you from the love of god 
that's in Christ Jesus for you. He just loves you. He always has and he always will. And let me remind you of it. Do you know why? Because our love is always a responsive love. It's never an initiating love. So when you start resting in that love of God that poured out upon us before we were ever interested in God, before we'd ever got our act together, when we start resting again, do you remember how you just used to soak it in? Do you remember that? And just think, the Father loves me. When that starts happening, again, our hearts will rise. Please don't think for a moment that your flaws or mine could stop the groom loving the bride. A great surgeon named Richard Selzer had to cut into the face of a lovely young woman to remove a large tumour. He did the best, but in the course of the surgery, he severed a, a tiny twig of a facial nerve that controlled one of the muscles of her mouth. And her once lovely face would remain grotesquely twisted in disfigurement for the rest of her life. Before the surgery, she had that kind of face that sometimes would cause people just to stop and look at her because she was so lovely. No one would ever do that again. If they stopped to look at her face from that day on, it would be for another reason. Richard Selzer was there as her young husband sat beside her hospital bed. And the lady asked for a mirror. As she looked at it, she turned to the surgeon and she said, Will my face always look like this? Yes, he replied. It will because the nerve was cut. She was silent. But her husband smiled. He said, I like it. It's kind of cute. And then to add an exclamation point, he bent down to kiss her crooked mouth. And Selza, that surgeon, wrote, I was so close. I could see how he twisted his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her their kiss still works. To show her their kiss still works. Deformity doesn't. Deformity doesn't stop love. Flaws don't stop love. Do you think our God will stop loving you because of some flaw? No, remember that love, friends. Remember that love and soak it in again. And just bathe, keep yourselves, Jude said, keep yourselves in the love of God like a waterfall. Just stay there and just let it keep washing over you and you know what will happen to our hearts we will rise again with a fresh passion and devotion and adoration to this God 
who reached through eternity, who reached through all our offenses and who loved us. And as our hearts rise in love to him, they'll rise again with love for one another and we will love each other. We'll spill over this community into the wider. And there's a promise. Jesus says, when we overcome to the conqueror, he says, at the end of every letter, I believe, when we overcome the particular spiritual malaise that's prevalent in every local setting of these churches, when we conquer it by faith in Christ, then Jesus gives a promise filled with hyperlinks to the rest of the preceding story. Look at that. He will grant to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You know where that's hyperlinked to. Where did we see that? It's right, right there in the opening pages. There's that beautiful garden that God created. One simple command, rebelled, thumbed their noses, did not trust, believed the lie, reached out, took from the forbidden tree. And so that tree of life, what did God do? He said, you're now barred from the garden. I'm going to set up some flaming cherubim to guard the way. You're barred from ever having access to that tree. But now, at the end of the book, Jesus gives this hyperlink back and he says, when you overcome, when you are somebody who re-engages with that first love, who repents and, and does the works you did at first, but with that old love, that first love, then you have access to that tree of life in the walled garden of the paradise of God. Beautiful. So how does this apply to us? You see, this letter is written to a church, a collective, a busy church, an enduring church, a doctrinally orthodox church, but a church that lost its love. Morley Baptist, how's our love? How's our love for our Saviour? How's our love for one another? Do we need to repent? Do we need to say, God, we're sorry, Lord Jesus. We're sorry that we left it behind. And we want to sit again at your feet and just be reminded of this immense love you've poured out for us and let it change us. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lampstand that is Morley Baptist Church. Thank you for its history. Thank you for all the things that you see in us that you would commend, genuinely commend. Lord Jesus, search our hearts. We don't want to be those who have become, uh, become a church that just fulfills a duty, that just does the things we do because 
It's the right thing to do. But we don't want to lose our heart. We don't want to lose the love. And so we ask you to awaken in our hearts afresh today an assurance of your great love to us. And where we need to repent, we repent. And we ask you to renew in us an adoration and a devotion and a passion, not just theologically accurate, but spiritually impassioned love for our God. May we love you because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name.